Hey guys, before we dive into today's episode, I just want to let you know about a couple things that I think that you'll love. If you enjoy the Business and Leadership Podcast, you will most likely enjoy the Sunday Six. The Sunday Six is a Sunday newsletter that I send out every week, and it includes six interesting things that you can read in under six minutes. You can subscribe by clicking the link in the show notes or by going to jaredgrabiel.com. Um, of course, if you don't enjoy it, you can always unsubscribe, but I always recommend checking it out. And then two other resources, if you're really into business, leadership, self-help, self-growth, uh, check out the Self-Help Book, which is a book that I published January 17th of this year, and the Self-Help Journal, which is a great practical guide to self-awareness, which is arguably one of the greatest tools of leadership in today's world. Let's dive into today's show. This is the Business and Leadership Podcast Hey guys, welcome back to the Business and Leadership Podcast. On today's episode, I have Lisa Bodell. Lisa is globally recognized innovation leader, and she's the CEO of FutureThink, which is a company that works with other companies like Google, Airbnb, AT&T, and many others to help kill complexity, create space for innovation, and get to the work that really matters. She's also the best-selling author of uh, two books so far. One, Why Simple Wins, Escape the Complexity Trap and Get to Work That Matters. And then two, Kill the Company, In the Status Quo, Start an Innovation Revolution. With time management skills that border on an art form, Lisa likes to work hard, but also give back. She served as an advisor on the boards of the Association of Professional Futurists, Novartis Diversity and Inclusion Board, and on the Global Councils of the World Economic Forum. Among her many academic activities, Lisa has taught innovation and creativity at both American University and Fordham Universities. All that being said, Lisa, thank you for making the time to be on the show today. How are you? Good. Hey, thanks, Jared. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So uh, let's dive right in. And I usually like to start the show with uh, the same question for everybody, and it can seem open-ended, but I'll give you a little bit of a time frame here. Yeah. If you were to tell your story of, of how you got to where you are today in maybe two to three minutes, uh, what would that story sound like? Two to three minutes. Well, I always say that it was strategic luck, which I think is something innovators and entrepreneurs really, you know, they they wonder if they had luck, if they were really good at strategy. I think it's both. You need both. Um, you know, I'm a recovering ad agency person. I went to business school. I work in some of the biggest ad agencies. I was always very creative in a business environment, but because I didn't sit in the creative department, I, people didn't think your ideas mattered. And I thought that was just complete BS. So I left and started my own company. And the goal was to give people tools to be more creative and deal with change because people resist it naturally. And um, it turns out it took off. So what was really cool is it was the right time. People wanted to be entrepreneurs. They wanted to learn how to be innovative. So like our tools and, and courses were great for them. And I really wanted to have a business that was not just going to teach them how to do that, but make money in my sleep. And that's the real key, right? To being an entrepreneur is to make money in your sleep. So you're not just dependent on the amount of time you have because time is finite. So here it is 20 years later, and I've got a staff of 20 people in New York, around the country, and some in Europe. And um, we're really excited to teach them about innovation and even more importantly, how to simplify their lives, which is a big thing right now due to COVID. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And so you mentioned Future Think started about 20 years ago. Um, mm-hmm. I believe it started in 2003, right? Mm-hmm. So let's 
Uh, I want to sort of reverse engineer the story a little bit. Um, where did you grow up? I grew up in Michigan. Okay. Just outside of Detroit. Gotcha. And then you went to uh, college? Where'd you go to college? I went to University of Michigan. Yeah. Um, and then I ended up living in Chicago downtown and I got a job at Leo Burnett where I had an internship and it was awesome. It was amazing. And, uh, then all of a sudden, Hey, uh, my boyfriend and I, we decided maybe we should live in the same city and I moved to New York and I was only going to be there for a couple of years. And well, that was more than 20 years ago. So here I am. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you said something about your story that just because you didn't work in the creative department, um, it was sort of assumed that you weren't creative. Yeah. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Like what you yeah, I, I think it's changed a lot over the years because now people can be more entrepreneurial and it's more accepted. But, you know, before so many of organizations, which is part of the problem still today, um, you know, they want to put you in a box, right? It's about hierarchy and titles and organization structures and grids. And so you're hired for a role and you're put in a box and you're supposed to stay in that box. And so my box was account management. I was really good at it, not because of my relationships with my clients, but because I had ideas. And the creatives didn't like that that much. And my bosses didn't, um, that wasn't part of my performance review, right? It wasn't about being creative. It was about being strategic and on time and all this other stuff. Who knew that I could be, you know, cross-trained in different areas? So I really advocated to cross-train and allow people to work in different groups and matrix more. And that wasn't their thing. So I left and started my own business. And I thought that was really helpful because, I mean, I think what we see now within organizations is we want people to be, they call it T-shaped people, not I-shaped people, because too many people are have depth, you know, they're I, but people that succeed today in a creative environment and entrepreneurial environment have to be T. And that means it's not just about subject matter expertise, right? There's a lot of smart scientists, but the ones that get ahead are the ones that can collaborate, be agile, resilient, solve problems differently, be more innovative. So um, that's what I am. You know, I'm a T-shaped person, and that's what I want to teach people to be because, quite frankly, that's the future, right? Machines are for depth. People are for breadth. So we're talking about generalization, generalization over specialization? Is that what you mean? Yes and no. I mean, I think you have to have some kind of specialization. People don't just hire you to hire you. They, I mean, you have to have some sort of specialty. But the idea is um, organizations now really, w with few exceptions, like scientists or engineers, they have to have specialties. But even within a team, right, we know that everything is very uh, intertwined. Right. You don't have like engineers and then you have tech separate. They have to work together. Right. Um, we don't just have people in the U.S. and then we have people in Asia. They have to work together. So that's teaching people what used to be called soft skills that are now called power skills. So collaboration isn't just a nice to have. It's a must have. And the people that have those power skills, you know, the breadth on top of the depth are the ones that get ahead. And that's why I, I frankly think entrepreneurs are the best kind of people to hire because they're naturally cross-trained. They know how to do lots of different things uh, and get the job done. Right. Now, this is 20 years ago. A lot has obviously changed uh, in the past two decades, but 20 years ago, being a female founder, uh, mm -hmm. was that difficult? Can you explain what that, what that process was like? Was there hurdles that maybe um, other people, men, uh, people now, women now, wouldn't have to endure because this was 20 years ago as a female founder? Uh, it's a good question. I never thought about it. 
to be honest, because I was just with my head down trying to get ahead. Um, reflecting now, yeah, most definitely. I think, you know, there's a lot of things that in terms of your worldview calcify over time. So after a few decades of it, you start to look back and go, hmm, that could have been easier if I had been someone different. But um, I don't have that choice. And I, you know, you, you play to your strengths. That's it. That's all you can do. I think that speaks a lot of volumes to um, not accepting uh, sort of this victim mentality because 20 years ago, you could have certainly said, there's no way I can start a company. I'm a female. I've never started a company. This is you know, too early 2000. Like a lot of things were different, but you didn't make those excuses. You just pursued it. What do you think about you uh, allowed you to do that? something in your upbringing or? Well, two things there. Um, well, my parents are both entrepreneurs. So yes, that's very helpful. And it wasn't one of those like, um, my I didn't have a mindset shift because I just was used to it, right? Um, uh, but back to the thing is, I, I would be careful with victim mentality. So it's, I would never, I, I do think people can't use, um, it is what it is. And what you have to do is persevere against and try to change things. So um, there are definitely barriers that need to be overcome for a lot of different people in a lot of different ways. And I don't like I, I don't think because I experience those things that I am a victim or act like one. But I do think that there are um, there are certain things that people have to fight against and persevere against to change. So it's easier for others going forward. So I do sit on a lot of um, gender and inclusion boards. Um, diversity boards. and But my perspective is on the diversity, not just from, it can be women, but um, thinking. Because diversity of thinking and diversity of backgrounds is what makes innovation thrive. So I do that at Novartis, right? One of the biggest drug companies in the world. I do it at the NSA, um, one of the biggest cyber areas in the world to help government. And I do it at the World Economic Forum to help change um, people on the political stage. So there's lots of levers you can pull. And I think the older you get, the more experienced you get. Um, it's it's less about just people. It's more about changing policy. And the only thing that's harder to change than a person is a policy. And those things take time and effort. And that's where perseverance comes from. Now, 20 years ago, when you decided uh, to start your own company, what, do you remember the moment that you said, I'm going to start a company and I'm going to call it Future Think, and we're going to work with other companies to help catalyze innovation, creative change, et cetera? Yeah, I did. I, um, I was already out on my own and I realized that I wanted to start, I had a partner at the time um, and we had a nice business, but I felt like it was, um, anybody could do it. It was around marketing. Right when I first I, I left agencies and I was out on my own and then I found a partner and we were doing marketing. But you know, there's a big difference when you start a company. You don't want to be the best at what you do. You want to be the only one that does what you do. That's how you really succeed. And so, you know, I was a futurist. I'm trained as a futurist. There are not that many of them. Um, I think I have very avant-garde ideas. And I said, you know, I, I think I'm better off on my own. I have the the cojones to go and leave and do it on my own. So I, I remember the moment sitting in my office saying, you know, I can do this better on my own and I want to do something different. And I struck out and I reached out to all my best clients and said, hey, can I get your opinion on this business idea? So it was an idea before it was a name. And once they told me what the idea was around futuristic and thinking, I just brainstormed the name. Love it. Uh, you mentioned that you're a futurist. and. Mm -hmm. How would you define a futurist? 
Well, futurists are about you know teaching people how change happens. So the idea around futurists is getting people to realize that the future isn't something set in stone. It is something you can create. And so we help people realize um, to look for weak signals that are happening uh, in the culture, like trends that are emerging. And then we teach them about possible, probable, and preferable scenarios for the future. So really good companies, um, they look long-term for the future, not just the next one year, three years, shareholder meeting, whatever. And they start to really say, this is the trends we want to go after. This is where we're going to place our bets. And here's which ones are probable. Here's which ones are possible based on what we have. And here are the ones that are preferable. Because some of the trends might be possible. Like, let's say you're an oil company. And um, the trend is about green energy, not oil. (laughs) So the trend is quite possible. It might not be preferable, but you need to embrace it. So you better start now. So that's what we teach people is we show people trends and then we teach them how to embrace them or uh, how to how to uh, manage the risk against them. How has the pandemic changed what work looks like now and what are the <laughs> how much time do you have? Uh, I think the best thing about the pandemic, speaking as a futurist, is like what futurists do is they ask you challenge to challenge your assumptions, Jared, around how life has to be. And how work has to be. And so many people before we had the pandemic will tell you, um, you know, working from home remotely can never happen. And that's as a futurist, the word never is always a favorite because that always is like a spark of challenge. And um, the one thing that's different now than if this had happened 10 years ago is the technology allows us to do this. So people all of a sudden work from home and guess what? Surprise, it worked. And what this really helped us realize is we need to better challenge the assumptions around um, how things work. We need to do a better job of piloting things that could be more efficient. And people's behaviors can be easier to change than you think. What holds most people back is fear. So I think um, to answer your question, how work has changed. One, I think hybrid is here to stay. I think that um, what we're seeing with people that want their teams back at work full time is because there's an issue around uh, fear and trust, right? It's not we work better. It's they don't trust them. And that's why people are really getting ticked off and leaving their jobs. You know, what do you mean you don't trust me? And I also think that um, how we collaborate is going to change. So what used to be just we have to sit physically in a room to collaborate, i.e. meetings, that's not the case anymore. We can do it over Zoom or we can do it remotely. And I think we've really challenged uh, why is it we need to get together physically versus staying remote? That's really what it comes down to. And I think you're going to see how work environments, um, for example, in New York City, where I am, um, people are downsizing their offices and really they're not offices anymore. They're collaboration space. So versus where you used to fight for conference rooms. Imagine now that the only reason you would come into the office is as an innovation space, a collaboration space, a meeting space. That's it, right? You don't really have desks there. You can do that, that task time at home, that thinking time at home, but the collaboration time is physically together. So smart companies are already realizing this. And I think that's how you're going to see a new trend in work. It's not going to be as physical as it was before. How do the companies that are having a hard time with it, how do they adapt? Or maybe the people, the employees as well. How did they adapt to being hybrid? I think we're seeing it happen right now. I mean, what's happening is, uh, first of all, humans are not great with change. We like uh, status, right? We're about fight or flight. We like normalcy because it puts us, um, we like to mitigate our risk of survival. So anything that is completely different than what we know we immediately push back on it. So working from home, 
you know, to a lot of people, that's never been done before. So we feel like it's not going to work. We push back. I think what we're seeing now is that um, people can do it. Um, this is less about their ability to be productive. We've seen that they can be. This is more about uh, management and organizations uh, recalibrating what they define as um, productive work and how they trust their people to get the outcomes they need, right? We used to measure people in terms of how visible they were, what a good worker they are. I see them all the time, but they might not have been doing good work. And now we're showing that people can be home do just as good as work, but we don't see them as often. And I think that's a big behavioral change for leaders. So how are companies dealing with it? A lot of it is a behavioral change and a management change. Um, they definitely have upped their technology and they're changing their HR policies to match the new world of work, which I think is great, right? It's about outcomes, not about inputs. You mentioned fear and trust and leadership. Um, Obviously, when you're a leader and you're hiring for a position, uh, in the past, prior to the pandemic, uh, the majority of those positions would be in person. So you can you can you can manage that person. You can manage outcomes a little bit better um, than maybe now, where you have to trust your people to be autonomous and sort of uh, self-led. Do you think that changes the hiring process throughout these organizations? Is there new? Yep ways that we can go about making sure these people, because I'll be honest, um, even in my experience as a business owner and leader, um, I've learned that if you give some people an inch, they will take a mile. And so the fear, yeah. and the distrust is, um, it's not that foreign to me uh, because people, you know, employees will take advantage, not generally, but from time to time. And so how do you, I think where we change that is picking the right people, but how do we, how do we pick the right people? Well, two things. Before we were constrained, um, our talent was more constrained geographically, right? So I would usually hire people for, in my work, they'd be from New York City, which is an exorbitantly expensive, and it's, it's a great talent pool, so I was less restricted. But still, now I have people that I can hire. My talent pool is anywhere in the world. So the good news is my talent pool opened up. What you're talking about is the fear of people taking advantage, right? Fear. I think what it's going to mean is how are we going to better measure people less based on seeing them physically, seeing them do the work, and having to measure more of the outputs. So I think that's really going to make leaders um, be much more on top of did they get X done by X time um, versus how much time did I spend seeing them at work. I really could care less if my team works nine to five. I don't care but I do care if they miss their deadlines. So I think I'm just shifting my measures now. Do you think it makes it easier to uh, be more of a results-oriented leader? For example, um, you know, when you own it, and you know this, when you own a company, you create relationships with your employees, and sometimes those relationships can sort of muddy the waters of the expectations of results. And so you've got this employee that's been great for a long time. He or she has been you've connected with the person, they don't give you the deliverables a few times, you still give them some, some leeway. Do you think this hybrid world sort of disconnects a little bit to where it's like you either get the job done and you stay or you don't and you don't stay? You know, that's a really interesting question, Jared, because I think what people are missing from being together is that kind of camaraderie, culture, social lubricant, um, which I think is true, 
However, as someone, I'm kind of an ambivert, right? I'm introverted and extroverted. I don't need to be physically together all the time with people. Some do, some don't. But I think what you're getting at is people want some of the social aspect and they're missing that. My response to that as a person who's very focused on productivity is we had almost too much of that before and it got in the way. So I actually think um, in a new world of work where you get this home time, like you see me here, and then we come together for some of those more purposeful, pointed social interactions will be more um, productive and get rid of some of the, oh, I want to say politics. Right. That we had at work. Now, the Future Think website says that you guys accelerate how people learn with quick and agile learning experiences. Mm -hmm. Um, You provoke how people think with perspective shifting exercises and transform the work with tools, techniques, and instant work hacks. Can we, uh, from the top, like what are some of those uh, agile learning experiences? Can you give me an example? Yeah, I mean, the best one we do when we teach, for example, simplicity is, remember I talked about we have to challenge how we work. We do a workshop and an exercise called Kill a Stupid Rule. And what's really great about it is people don't realize we value more in organizations, right? You get promoted for more, doing more, managing more, running more products, running more money. But very rarely do you get bonused for doing less. And so you're never taught to get rid of waste, right? And rules are like weeds in a garden. You, they, they get there. We don't question them, even though they might be completely unnecessary. So kill a stupid rule is a great way when you get leaders in a room to say, if you could get rid of any rules, time sucks, things that are holding you back, what would they be? And I'm telling you, from even a small organization to the largest, and we work with the biggest, um, they come up with a lot of things. People have tons of ideas. And the good news is there are a lot of unnecessary things that you just never took the time or they were empowered to get rid of. The other thing that's really interesting, Jared, is that what they come up with when you give them this exercise, some are rules. Most of them aren't. There are things like cultural norms, annoyances, reports, meetings, emails. Those aren't rules. And so what we're talking about is we're helping people question the way that they work so they can be not just more effective, right? It's not about me getting my employees to do three times the amount of work. It's about them doing more meaningful work. So many people are wasting their time on time sucks. Like, how many people do you know that are drowning in meetings all day? I mean, most people. And most people would say that those meetings are not necessary nor productive. So I can think of a lot of better ways they could spend their time on meaningful work versus unnecessary self, self-imposed self things. So, I mean, for people listening here that are entrepreneurs or, you know, really rising up in their jobs, if you did a kill a stupid role with your team, one, it's a big energizer culturally, like you're a rock star boss. Um, but also people are just pumped because it teaches them to question unnecessary work and be more productive. Yeah. And it gives them a voice to it, which I think is important. Yeah. Uh, and you mentioned, or the website mentions provoking how you think with perspective shifting exercises, would those exercises be different than the experience that we just talked about? Yeah. Like what if you, another one is about, um, assumption reversal. Like I think, One of the reasons people have a hard time changing their business or coming up with new ideas is because they're stuck in how uh, things work right now. And so what we do is we teach them that the best way to solve a problem is first to break it into parts because problems are just parts put together. 
and then to reverse their assumptions around these parts. So for example, we might teach them, uh, you can even teach them something mundane, like what if you had to change how restaurants work? And you list all the assumptions you have around a restaurant, like Jared, what has to be in a restaurant, for example? Product. Okay, what else? Uh, chairs. Chairs, right, good. Tables. Tables, chefs. Front desk, chefs, cashier. Cashier, menus. Lights. So we teach them, what if you took each of those assumptions and you reverse them? Not the opposite, but the alternative. So if it's a chef, maybe it's a, a robot. Maybe it's make your own. Maybe rather than drinks, it's IVs. It's pills. Maybe rather than food, it's bring your own. And when you see the reverse of these, then you cobble together brand new ideas that are totally out of the box. So that's how you disrupt thinking, is reversing your assumptions. We have lots of things like that. Um, we also teach them a concept called quiz, which is a scientific way of 40 ways you can relook at your business based on science. And they are amazing. You know, build it up, break it down, new partnerships, reverse the process, all kinds of stuff. Basically, the idea is how do you give people new techniques to shift their assumptions and get more value out of their existing IP? Yeah. And there's a lot. I really like that. Now, you've been in this in this industry for close to 20 years now mm -hmm. I'm sure that you've got competitors um you've had plenty of employees over the years what are bad recommendations that you hear in your <laughs> uh, or you know your area of expertise what are some things that you hear and you just you just roll your eyes or you've got to write a blog about it next week or something like that uh well i mean i think some of the bad things are is that people People focus on amount of things versus meaning of things, right? So you got to define valuable work. So when people think of what are your KPIs, what are your right performance index, it, they think in terms of numbers, which is great, but they never then define what the meaningful work is. So I think defining meaningful work is number one. Empowering people to do not just more but less, meaning get rid of things that aren't working. Um, and I think the other thing, too, is, uh, we spend a lot of time doing big annual performance reviews and strategic plans, which you need. But um, I am more in with my team to do them ongoing, and we use our Salesforce dashboard as our constant monthly strategic plan. So we're much more agile than we are stuck in the um, uh, the way organizations are are done right now. Is they're very hierarchical and they're very annual, and I think that that's not how how work is anymore. And so we we have completely gotten rid of of all of that. And I think companies are going to start to do more of that too. It's just, it's not realistic with how it works anymore. Right. Now you're working on a third book, right? Yeah. Just starting. Can you talk a little bit about that project? Yeah. So one of the things we noticed from, you know, every book has to build on each other, right? You don't think of them as books. You think of them as platforms. And the first one I had, my platform is to provoke and to question things you know, like shift your perspective on an old topic. So with innovation, it wasn't about um, how do you just innovate? It's like, how do you destroy your company and really look at how to make it stronger, better, faster based on what's really working? So that's about getting rid of the politics and getting more into what really is good. Then the next book really built on the reason why people can't do that. They can't be innovative is because they're drowning in complexity, meetings and emails all day. So really, if you don't simplify, you don't have time to innovate. And now this current book is really focusing on the issue of time. Because at the end of the day, that's really what matters. Because 
you can have an idea, you can have all kinds of things, but if you don't have the time to think, you'll never have the time to do. And so what I'm trying to shift people in terms of their perspective is this is not about time management or productivity. This is about focusing on things that matter. And I really think that people need to start paying more attention to their time. So, you know, we get really mad, Jarrett, when people waste our money. Why don't we get the same level of upset when people waste our time, right? You're never going to get it back. It's a non-renewable resource. And it's the one thing we need to be more intentional about. We throw away our time like nobody's business. Um, I, I think people are going to start, they're getting wise to it, right? With the pandemic, they're like, God, did I waste a lot of time before? What the hell? And I think if we could teach people how to say yes with intention and no with purpose, they would be much more fulfilled at work. They would do more meaningful things and companies would be stronger because of it. So I, my next kind of platform is about, it's not about time management, it's about time intention. And I think that that could really change the way people work. Yeah, that's exciting. Uh, and it's a great subject matter. I agree entirely. I'm a big, uh, for the, you know, I'm trying not to use the phrase, but I'm a big time management person as well, but no. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh-huh. in, for the sake of um, doing good work and, and really choosing how I spend my time, I would say to a fault. Um, in your opinion, what do you think makes a good leader? If you were to identify one to three character traits, what would they be? Focus is one. Um, you know, you know what you want to be able to do. Um, two, I think, is also uh, being more results-oriented versus input-oriented. And the third is going to be trust. So I think one of the things that I've realized over time is, you know, work is not just about tasks, it's about behaviors. And so if you can teach people that you trust them, that takes away their fear to try new things um, and to be able to move forward with what you need them to do. That's really good. And I appreciate how prepared you were for that question. Um, oh, I wasn't, it just came out. So thank you. It sounds like you, you've thought about that. Uh-uh. Let's sort of spin the same question. What do you think contributes the most to business success? You've worked with some of the biggest businesses in the world. And you've worked with plenty others. Um, what do you think if you were to identify maybe market timing or leadership or teamwork, culture, market conditions? The business- I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure it's very different, to be honest. I mean, I, I think one of the things that we realize with large organizations now is that they're realizing that <clears throat> speed is more important than size. So it's not about being big anymore. because technology has wiped that out, right? A small player can overtake a big player because they're focused. And therefore, focus allows them to simplify their business, be able to move faster, and they can overtake large competitors because they're not wallowing in rules and being distracted and and focused internally on reports and metrics and all that. They're focused and they move faster. So I think the, the key thing is it's similar. It's about focus and speed. And it's about being able to do meaningful work, not unnecessary work. All, all that to say is I think the best ones, the reason they get focused is because they're you know, they're more simplified. They're not trying to do everything. They're trying to do the best things. Mm-hmm. So if you look at, um, like, look at Airbnb, they made it simple to get a room, right? Uber makes it simple to get a car. Dropbox makes it easy to get files. They're not 80 different kinds of things. They're one thing, and they do it really well. Right. You... Uh mentioned focus a lot. Have you ever taken the, uh, what is it? The strength test. It is like Gallup, MBTI. Gallup strength finder. Yeah. Uh-huh. You know what your top five strengths are? No, I totally forgot. It's been so long. What are yours? Do you remember? 
Uh, I do remember. It's something that I, I had. It was a sort of a practice for all of our staff to do, and I think it's in my email signature. So it's a I, I like this strength finder test. Uh, yeah, uh, focus is one. Uh, learner is two. Input is three. Futuristic is four, and I always forget the fifth, um, <laughs> which is, is is ironic, but. Uh, but yeah, so it's, it's interesting that you mentioned focus a lot. I bet that would be one of your, one of, and obviously futuristic would probably be one of your. It would be up there. It would be up there. Yeah, we probably have a lot in common. Clearly. Um, so I have a couple last questions I'd like to sort of um, close out with. Yeah. If you were to refer one book or maybe two or three books, um, or maybe what is the most common books that you refer to people? What are those books? They don't have to be business or uh, maybe they're innovation, maybe they're fiction. Um, what are those books? So there's two right now I really like. One is uh, Adam Grant, who's a friend of mine, Think Again. I think his new book that came out, I'm thinking is really great. Um, I also like Aftershock that just that came out. Um, full disclosure, I'm in the book because we it was about futurists writing different chapters. But the, the other futurists in this book, it's, it's reflecting back on Alvin Toffler, who's the original futurist. Um, and what he predicted 50 years ago, the 50th anniversary of his work that set off on scenario planning within the Department of Defense, for example, um, and how he was really um, just before his time. And I just think it's a really fascinating look at how people look at the future. So Think Again and Aftershock are two books I would take a look at. Thank you for those. Those both sound really exciting, at least to me. They're cool. And in the past six months, what's the best purchase you've made for under a hundred dollars? For under a hundred dollars, oh my god! Uh, well, my Caribbean sneakers, I really like so much because they're just fun. Caribbean uh, sneakers, they're just you know they're they're the go-to for everybody this year to be casual. Um, and let's think what another one is. Um, Oh, I love my my Warby Parker sunglasses that I wore on vacation. So yeah, they're all material things, but they're just like they're cheap, they're fun, but they're totally cool. Yeah, and you know, glasses and shoes for under a hundred bucks uh, <laughs> to find quality can be relatively rare. Last, yeah. question, I got to give Tim Ferriss credit for this because he sort of originated it. But if you could put anything on a big blank billboard over the busiest street that you know of or busiest intersection, what would that billboard stay? Uh, that's a really good question. So there's two things that just went to my head. Well, one was learn to say no, because <laughs> I think that's very empowering to people. And the other one is focus. And I think that would make people be a lot happier. I, I, I would feel so convicted. I love both of those. Um, if I was driving and I saw focus, just the word focus on a whiteboard or on a billboard, mm -hmm. I would be so convicted because I'm always so distracted. <sighs> But especially driving, it's such a, like, an important thing. <laughs> um, so I love that. Focus and learn to say no. Well, Lisa, I, I've really appreciated your time today. I've loved this interview. Um, obviously, shared some common strengths. And so it's been an interesting conversation for me. Mm -hmm. um, when can people expect for this new book to come out? Do you have a date? I know it's brand new. I love you asking me that. No, I'm just starting it. So give me a year but I'll let you know as soon as it's ready to go. I want to do, I, I'm a researcher, so I like to make sure that my stuff is airtight before I let it out. Absolutely, and I can appreciate that. Maybe we'll just have to have you back on in a year when it launches. Cool, I love it.
How can people find out more about you and maybe more about Future Think? Uh, find me on LinkedIn, Lisa Bodell. Find me on Twitter, Lisa Bodell, or you know, come to our website at futurethink.com. And for the entrepreneurs or people that are listening here, there's a lot of free resources because uh, you know we're about helping people really find their potential. And if some of the resources we have on there can help, take them, use them, spread the word. Awesome. Thanks again for being on the show. Thanks, Jared. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Before you go, I have a couple asks of you. Number one, if you enjoy the Business and Leadership Podcast, I highly recommend you checking out the Sunday Six. Uh, the Sunday Six is a newsletter that I send out every Sunday with six interesting things that t- should take you about six minutes or less to check it out, unless you decide to go on one of the rabbit holes of the links that I include in the email. It's definitely worth checking out. And of course, if you don't enjoy it, you can always unsubscribe. You can check out the Sunday Six by uh, looking in the show notes. There's a link there or going to jaredgrabiel.com and subscribing. Additionally, of course, January 17th, I published my first book, The Self-Help Book. And if you enjoy the content in the Business and Leadership Podcast, you'll most likely enjoy the book. You can read it in under two hours. It's very applicable, extremely practical. You can pick up one chapter and apply it to your life, or you can read the whole thing. Um, The Self-Help Book can be found at amazon.com or anywhere online that books are sold. And last but not least, the self-help journal. Of course, if you enjoy the book, you'll love the journal. It's a practical way to apply some of the steps to your life. Um, Self-awareness is a huge tool in business and leadership and journaling. Whether you use mine or anybody else's is going to be the best step you can take towards gaining self-awareness. So I recommend checking that out. Just search the self-help journal, Jared Grabiel on amazon.com. It's currently for sale for $9.99. And again, if you enjoy the show, please do two things. Refer it to a friend and leave a review on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to the podcast. Thanks again. Much love and God bless.